Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. What is an idea? Something that either helps you experience the world better or understand it better. That's according to Joe Staples, Chief Creative Officer at independent agency Mother. As one of the founding members of Mother's LA office, Staples came to the office with mise en place, a French cooking term for having all of your ingredients on the table, from Mother's reputation and history for edgy out-of-the-box thinking, and the opportunity to put it together in a fresh way. Staples, who was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD late in life, has a keen understanding of how to get the best out of neurodivergent talent, which are predominant in creative fields. He also chats about his time at Wyatt and Kennedy, his study of jujitsu, and his favorite piece of creative he's seen recently, a simple window display from Hermes. I'm Allison Weisbrot, Editor-in-Chief of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, Joe. How are you? I am. I'm doing really well. Good. I'm doing really well. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm probably not doing as well as you because you're in LA and it's probably sunny and warm and I'm in New York in January. It's been, it's flooded yesterday, <laughs> but you got me, sun came out. It is one of those perfect LA days where there's no dust in the air. There's nothing. It's like we've had rain. Everything's green. Everything smells good. It's about as good as it gets right now. Wow. Well, definitely make sure to go out and take a walk today and don't sit at your computer all day. But um, you do not sound like you're from L.A. No, I've been putting this accent on for my whole... I heard English people get recognized in advertising, so I I, I made the accent up. <laughs> um, well, jokes aside, you are the CCO at Mother, and obviously Mother is a London-founded agency. Talk a little bit about, it's been in the U.S. for some time, but talk a little bit about the history of the agency and then a little bit about its trajectory in the U.S. more specifically. Yeah, I've I've been at Mother for about six years, but to your point, it's, I think Mother started like the year before I graduated from college in London. So my like formative understanding was that really early moment where Britpop was around, Cool Britannia was around. There was, there were people that defined the music. There were people that defined the art. There were people that defined the politics. And then these ads and stuff started going into the world that was very different to anything that had ever been done before. And it kind of felt like you're about to see, I've got a lot of, a lot of chips on my shoulder, but one <laughs> of them was it kind of felt like advertising was done by dudes that had biplanes and drove MGs. And then suddenly these people came along that just didn't care for any of that. And something changed. And then I had like maybe almost 20 years of a career, not at mother, but having them kind of a a peripheral vision of seeing them change. And then at like maybe 14, 15 years of my career were at Wyden and Kennedy. So there aren't many other global independent agencies. So they were always kind of there or thereabouts. And I think independent agencies just kind of seem to get on. Everybody knows each other at different places. So about six years ago when I moved to LA, I had the snobbiness of somewhere that had worked somewhere quite good. And I really wanted to freelance at places. And I freelanced at a bunch of LA agencies just to see what they were like at the same time as having conversations about, I didn't start LA, LA, there was maybe 10 people there, but it was mm-hmm. a, a few months in. So I joined LA really, really early. Mm-hmm. Now, if I talk about that, then what happened, what the plan was. 
Yeah, go for it. Well, I think that from from the outside, I'm going to use kind of poncy French cooking term because I just read a poncy French cooking book. But <laughs> mise en place being the ingredients you prepare, things in their place. Mm. Before you cook, you get all your stuff out and you see what you have to work with. And from a U.S. point of view, it's interesting watching Mother, which was they've started so many companies, 28, 30 companies, be them uh, helped start, uh, be them agencies, media companies, but also products, hand creams and condiments. Mm -hmm. And they've had this entrepreneurial wing. They've had arguably the best agency over the last two and a three decades in London, but they were kind of separate. So what it seemed like was when you open an office, you can't change the kind of cultural DNA of the place, but how you compose your mise en place, the thing you cook with it, that's up for discussion. And the mm. thing that we kind of knew we wanted to do here was take the, the ingredients and the culture that had been there, plus a 15-year history in the US, in New York, and then try to kind of rejig these ingredients to make a different shape of company. And that was one where Mother was started around a kitchen table in London. If you, if you kind of Google the London office, it's just like one long concrete bench. So how can you get not different departments, but different disciplines sitting together? So 15 or 20 years ago when media was uncoupled from holding companies and it was it became its own thing and our our take was it's okay to it's good to have a media company it's good to work with design it's good to have a ventures group but sit them at literally the same table and mm -hmm. then watch the creative overlap do its thing so from a managerial point of view, it is setting the conditions for creativity. And one of those things was to have ventures, have media, have design, have advertising, uh, have hardcore strategy and put them literally at a table. Like we, we do literally sit there. So the conversations you overhear are varied. The influences on people's desks are varied. The work that gets put on the wall are varied. But then we find a common vernacular. Mm that we kind of rally around in the middle. Yeah, it's interesting. Like this is sort of what the holding companies and all agencies are trying to get to now, right? Is have these cross-discipline teams and people sort of speaking the same common language. How are you able to do it at Mother? Like, does that come with the territory yeah. of being an independent? Um, what do you think made it possible? Yeah, it is. It is. I'm sure... 80% of people that will listen to this have read the Freakonomics series of books. <laughs> so I think everybody probably should read the Freakonomics series of books. But incentivization, if we learn anything from that, that, that line of thinking, it is that incentivization will dictate outcome. Mm. And independent agencies are not incentivized in the same way holding companies is incentivized. Just the structure of how and why you make money. So, our incentivization is the cross-pollinization more than the separate P&L. Mm -hmm. So we can actually yeah. have people sit together with no fief – there are no fiefdoms. There are companies, but there aren't really fiefdoms. I don't know if I'm actually answering your question clearly. <laughs> no, I did, think – Did that answer the question? It did. It did. But I, I want to I um, go back in time a little bit to that table that you were talking about where when Mother was launched – 
And you said that they were doing things differently. Like what, what was it, what was different that they were doing? You mean originally like in London, 25, 27 years ago? Yeah. What, what caught your eye? There is a kind of creative rebellion in the UK that has a different tenor, a different sound, a different smell to other kinds of rebellion. And I think it is the kind of punching up. Mm. I don't want to go Marxist seven minutes into a chat, but (laughs) there is a kind of class system punching up and which hadn't happened in advertising because it was an establishment. So you had people that were, they started an agency before they were wildly successful. Mm. So you had people who were eating pot noodles, doing ads for pot noodles. Mm -hmm. So it was their comment on, this is how we do it. And there was at the moment, at the time, there was kind of this cultural acceptance of, um, I'm pretty gross and I think you're pretty gross. And can we talk about that for a second? And now with social media, that's 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 the whole of social media. Yeah. I do this weird thing. I assume you do this weird thing. At the time, that wasn't really that wasn't the way advertising talked. Mm-hmm. There wasn't the the humility and self depreciation of comedy of every relationship we've ever had. I don't think existed that much in advertising, and it's still a struggle, right? Because every brief we get is these are the best fucking fidget magnets you've ever fucking thought of. And if you don't buy them, you'll shit your pants, whatever it is. It's like, this is the most amazing. This is the most amazing. And I think that there is some humility to saying to the acknowledgement that all of our relationships are built on uh, frailty, on honesty, it built on different things. And I think that about 27 years ago, mother were at the kind of, the epicenter in advertising of that moment. Mm, so a little more authentic, a little more real, real, but less polished, yeah. which is kind of how things are today. I think that, that, it, that the world evolved into that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So why the name mother? That's so, that's such a good question that never <laughs> is asked. And I will, the reason I'm smiling here is because when I left, I left a cult which was Widen and Kennedy. <laughs> and I joined another cult, which was Mother. And I was really aware I didn't want to bring one cult to the new one. And I needed to find out what this place was about. So I had weekly calls. I mean, I still we still chat all the time. But weekly calls with Robert Savile, where I would say, uh, how did you afford furniture? Why did you call it Mother? Who did that first logo? Why did this happen? Why did you do... And one of them was that. And I think there's quite a lot of, I'm not going to answer this directly if you're waiting for that. I think that there's a <laughs> lot of uh, the mythology, the mythology around it, because after a couple of years, the phrase make your mother proud became something in the kind of cultural vernacular of the agency, which is like, do work less so for the industry, but do work that resonates with culture and that your mum would go, good one. But I don't think that's the original intention of it. I think mm. it was just something about the care for creativity. Definitely a concerted effort to not have the surnames of mm. the people that started the agency. 
But the role of mother at mother isn't the role of creative. So the creatives aren't called the mother group. There's a mothering group. And that is about the nurturing and care and kind of chaperoning of creativity through an agency. So I think it's about care okay. and love. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> was, that, was that what you expected? <laughs> I was looking for more of an origin story, but I guess you weren't there, so I'll, I'll take it. I really was not. I was a long <laughs> way from being there. <laughs> um, well, so talk about, like, you know, we're sort of talking about how mother like broke out into the scene with this different way of doing creative in in London talk about how it transitioned to the U.S. I know New York opened a while before LA but what is mother sort of like known for in the U.S. market and how are you as CCO keeping that sort of you know punching up edgy approach alive in this world where it is sort of more mainstream I think that a lot of this credit Almost all of this credit goes to Paul Malstrom, like Linus and Paul, Linus and Paul, who started the New York office. Mother gives you this freedom where you are basically given the keys to an office. So they opened this place. And if you go into it at any point, it feels like you've entered Paul's house in a really lovely way. He is a incredibly genuine, incredibly uh, creative and completely fearless Swedish dude. And the culture of the place feels like don't go full midsummer, but like it is a strange place to be and you're expected to be yourself there. So it, he, he wasn't making the New York version of Robert and Mark and the gang's London place. It was what do you want to do in New York? So I think that that was a privilege that I had joining LA, which is, I mean, I've had interviews before, but very rarely do the person is the person's opening question. Like, what would you do with the place? Mm -hmm. It wasn't, we have a plan. This is how we do it. This is global expansion. This is how, this is what's going on. It was like, what would you do? I had a theory and they bought into that. So I think that the offices reflect the people running them. Mm -hmm. So now with Oriel and Terry and Veronica, it's kind of becoming a reflection of them as people. I think that's also the freedom that an independent gives, which is people stay there a long time. So it is what is this thing that you want to grow? Like at the beginning, if you think about the failed things that mother did, and I say this with a little smile, trying not to laugh because some of them are really funny, but it was what should we do? Mm. And some of those things worked incredibly well. And some of the stuff was let's start a slightly perverse sausage in a bun company. Literally started a business because it was an outlet for their form of creativity. So I do feel like at a time when everyone, me included, was were like just doing ads, they were experimenting with shapes of business. So you, you'll hear about the most successful ones and not hear about the less successful ones, but maybe it's worth looking at the less successful ones because there's mm. some purity of their vision there, which is let's try it. Well, let's talk about that. So mother has a ventures arm, which is really interesting. And I think that's what you've, you've kind of been alluding to here. So 
I guess why not maybe talk about the different businesses under Mother and then how as CCO you kind of think about creativity across all of them, including the Ventures arm. Well, I will imagine this is my son is into anime and he talks about side quests a lot of the time. So just uh, afford me this side quest <laughs> to explain what I think an idea is. I know that sounds really stupid, but many years ago, Mark Fitzloff and myself were teaching this junior school and it was people that had been doing advertising for three years or less. And one of the questions was, what's an idea? And this was from a creative and we went, we left the room and I was like, I'm going to put a presentation together about that. It'll be really easy. Figuring out how to articulate what an idea is, is not that easy. No. This was where we got to. I think that an idea is the solution to a problem. And there are only two kinds of problems. There are problems pertaining to the way we experience the world and problems pertaining to the way we understand the world. And usually in advertising, our clients make things that change the way we experience the world. They deliver food. Uh, they make a car. They make uh, running shoes. And what we do normally is change the way people understand the world. And when advertising works well, when marketing works well, uh, understand and experience is an overlap. And when, when there's some space between those is the confusion. So a lot of our job is to say you're thinking about that thing, Ron. So like Chris Milk, years ago, the director, Chris Milk, he was making films with VR goggles. And mm -hmm. at the time, the kind of our understanding of VR was it's for gamers. I almost said professional masturbators, but I don't even think that's a real job. But it was <laughs> one of these two things. And what he said was, you've got it wrong. It's an empathy engine. And in those, those two words put together allowed you to understand this is the ability to walk in someone's shoes. Mm. And because of his understanding and because of that reframing, it informed the kind of films he made and where the films went. And I think so much of our job is to say, wait, 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 I think you've misunderstood that thing. It's this thing. Mm. So if experience and understand need to overlap, and if we've practiced it a lot in advertising with other people's problems, Ventures from the beginning was, what if we informed experience and understand? So Nursum in the UK is a, uh, a hand cream formulated by nurses because they're the experts in hand washing because they do it 500 times a day. So they made the formula they wanted to use while funded and backed by mother and branded and advertised and designed by. So it is, if you have an ecosystem of creativity, uh, the only bit that you're kind of missing in this model is the product. So what if we came up with a product or facilitated somebody else coming up with a product? Mm. So it's like another avenue for, for being creative and it's also another revenue stream. It's both of those things. And then add on to that mother goods, which is different to ventures and mother goods is uh, not a revenue stream, but it is us playing with products as narrative. So the things I just talked about, we have a weed beer in the U in the U S we have a hand cream in the UK. These are, these are products that will go into general market that we will have 
incubated or funded or backed with money or people or space, advertising, design, media. And then mother goods are products or things that aren't necessarily meant to be mass marketed that have a narrative backing. So if you go to the website, for example, there is, uh, I think it costs about $100,000, and therefore we're probably not going to sell many of them, but it is bulletproof (laughs) loungewear. Okay. Yeah, as a comment on our, uh, on a country's kind of lackadaisical approach to uh, gun ownership. Okay. So uh, if everyone's going to be real chill about it, maybe we just have some uh, margaritas in our loungewear uh, and watch the world die. So, so this probably is, not going to make millions of dollars from this thing. It's more of a social commentary. Yeah, and it's a, it's it's kind of an easier step because we're now up to like maybe 10 or 15 of those products. So we have products in the world that will be sold, products on our website that we're playing with. Um, I mean, from the beginning of advertising, right, in any book you read, it says spend your client's money like it's your own. But Mother's the first place I've ever worked where it is our own. Yeah. So – it informs how we make those creative decisions and then how we go into any meeting. So how do you like, when you think about resources and staff, like how, how much do you have people working on these things versus client things? And are they working on both at the same time? Like how do you deploy your resources? Yeah. Both at the same time. Uh In my mind, you know, uh, you know, those metronomes that you see on posh pianos. Yes. They go like this. People who are, yeah, if someone's just listening to this, I'm waving my, I'm gesticulating. It won't make any sense. But where the weight is, is how fast this metronome goes, right? And I feel like everybody at any point should be working on something that's going to take six months to a year to make Mm. and something that should take one month and something that should take a week or a day. Mm -hmm. And so ideally, and it flexes different bits of your brain. So people can work on, AOR project, a project project, their own thing, a mother goods thing. So you have different looks and different kind of different at-bats. Mm. That's as an American as I'm going to get today, different at-bats. <laughs> and then you have different opportunities for people, right? So you can, it's, it's almost like a talent uh, lever. It's exactly that. Yeah. So you mentioned before you were at Wyden for 15 years. Another very iconic, independent, large creative agency. What sort of made you want to leave there? And um, and you talked a little bit about why you joined Mother, but um, talk about like your time there and, and maybe what's different about being at another scaled independent. I can talk about the differences and it will sound like it's really different, but it's only because I'm going to focus on that. I, I went from... ECD in like a 650 person office to LA where we were like 10 or 12 people. And that Mm -hmm. sounds so different, but the independence made it really not that weird. Mm -hmm. If I have any criticism of Wyden at that moment was how good it was across the board at one thing. Um, if you look at like the Emmys one for the pre, for the five, for those five years, it was across each client. So they're just the standard, the low bar was so high, mm. but it was broadcast narrative, long form. I mean, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm as guilty as anybody here, 
but it was one thing. And even with the kind of the growth of the lodge, which Nilesh and Paolo built at there at the time, um, and I this I, I didn't start it and I didn't close it, so I take no uh, I don't take no credit for this. But like a few months after I left, this thirty five person innovation lab was closed. Mm. Um, and I think it was like a double down on core coming to mother, all of the same feelings, the humanity, the way people related to each other, the standard, it was all there, but it was a group of people who had made hot dog machines, uh, books about rocks, as well as advertising, (laughs) as well as products, as well as spaces. So the creativity was possibly quieter because it was less single-minded, but mm-hmm. way more diverse. Interesting. Sounds like I pushed them apart there. It does sound like I was like, they're wildly different. The similarities, there was, there were, there were so, so many. Yeah. It seems like mother has a little bit of a, like a, I don't want to say out of the box, but a little bit more, you know, less, less like this is how you do advertising. And a little bit more like, here's all the funky creative things we can do to be creative people and also do advertising. That's my read. It is lovely you think that. That's that's a lovely, that'll be Um, be our header. Yeah, exactly. That should be your tagline. I just uh, request royalties. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about you uh, on a more personal note. So you, uh, I was reading that you were diagnosed with dyslexia late in life. Mm-hmm. Talk about yeah. how that impacted your career as a creative and how that shapes how you view talent and the types of talent that you bring into the agency. I think that at the time it felt like a big deal because both of my parents were special needs teachers and they, oh. and they hadn't realized that they hadn't realized that that's why I was like this, which is supposedly not that rare. I, I just think that over the last, what it meant was I was scared to write a check. I've never written a check. I was scared to like write the numbers in case I spelt 30 wrong in front of someone. Mm. So I could think in long words, but couldn't spell them. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple of decades of practice of trying to think about big things, but only be able to write simple things, which is advertising. So I didn't realize that those shitty years of teachers telling me I was stupid or lazy or, I mean, every, everyone with dyslexia has gone through similar stuff, which was, it was essentially practice for this job, which was how do you explain hopefully complex things in hopefully simple form? But then I will say, as I've talked about my dyslexia and ADHD and even panic attacks or whatever the things I've gone through, I've tried to be quite open about them. And Anytime you raise your hand and say something like that in an ad agency, 60% of the people there are like, oh, me too. And I do feel like creativity and sensitivity are so similar, almost the same thing, that in a place where you're pushed for creativity, it should be no surprise that it's full of neurodivergent people. And also that we're probably going to find out in decades to come that normal's not even a thing Mm. and that everybody just has slightly different there will be 15 spectrums that we will all accept and we'll be able to plot ourselves on them and it won't even be a big deal yeah it's it's interesting because i think what you said about you like more than half the people would raise their hands um is very true i mean creative people are 
like by definition, don't think in the linear same way that I guess is quote unquote normal. Um, your son also has dyslexia. So as you think about him growing up, like what, what are you doing or how are you thinking about better incorporating neurodivergent talent into the industry? And, and even like beyond neurodivergent, like people, you know, maybe they don't have the same background or they didn't get like the good grades in school to go to the good college that everybody hires out of. Like, how are you thinking about those things in the talent pipeline? I'm going to answer this in maybe two parts. And the first part is the simple bit, which is to say, we've looked for people in the same place for decades and we've even run out of those people or just we're aware that there are way more interesting places to look. Literally yesterday at my desk with Ty, uh, Ty came over and said, hey, can I go to Texas to go to a... uh, black anime conference because i think there's going to be a lot of interesting creative people there yes amazing go there so find different kinds of people that we wouldn't normally wouldn't be in this in the places that an agency would normally look that's one the other one is partly because of dyslexia partly because of just the way my brain works uh and in and a big thanks to jujitsu we and i have a way of teaching a process of creativity. One of the things I remember years and years ago, there's this book called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. And it's just interviews with really uh, with great creative people. In the, in the Philippe Stark part, he says, there's nothing more inspiring than a timeline and a budget. And I remember just going, God, with my brain, I find it so hard to concentrate on one thing at a time that I made little play areas, play moments. So it would be, what should I be thinking about for the next hour? Mm. And it might just be like, why this brief is bullshit. And I would only work on that. I wouldn't write ads. I wouldn't do anything. It'd just be like, why is this wrong? What have they got wrong? Is the audience wrong? Is that thing? Is that boring? Is everyone doing it? So we have a process of creativity, literally a diamond. I teach everybody that joins mother about this thing, which is, what to think about on each day. It's not a mandatory way to work, but it is a way to get either people to slow their thinking down and be purposeful about how they spend their days. And then also people that haven't been trained in creativity. Because I th- I think, I believe, and I'm writing this book, that creativity is one of the only industries where you aren't where you're encouraged but not taught. So in everything else you do, there are manuals and there are people that can tell you how to do the thing properly. And in creativity, you're given a problem or an opportunity and then left alone. And it's basically sink or swim. Lots of people enter wanting to be creatives and end up being strategists or start here and end up here. But I think that quite a lot of creativity can be taught. And I don't think it's taught. So Mm. me and we have a system to allow people to learn to unlock their form of creativity. And can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'll tell you about jiu-jitsu for a second. For anybody who doesn't know, jiu-jitsu became visible because the family that that were doing it invented the UFC. So they essentially invented modern MMA. And their thing was that this fighting art will be any other fighting art. And the, the way it does it is through a system of fighting. So you learn to take someone down. 
you learn to get past their legs, you learn to control them, you learn to submit them. So I've now been doing jiu-jitsu for 12 years. I can teach any part of jiu-jitsu is studyable. If you see two people fighting, it looks crazy. It just looks like two monkeys or cats rolling around. It looks like there's no uh, system or plan or even objective a lot of the time. Now, creativity looks a lot like that. It looks wild and it looks like cats rolling around in the mud and it's not. So in jiu-jitsu, I can teach you how to grab somebody's wrist properly. If I'm going to teach... Uh, any takedown, any guard pass or any submission, I can teach it. Anyone can teach it. And you can teach it to anybody. Uh, creativity has similarities. So I can tell you on day one what kinds of things to think about, where to look for inspiration, how to take notes about that inspiration, where to look for overlaps, how to look at a competitive set, all of this stuff is a process. It sounds wildly unromantic and like I've just made it into a machine, but each one of those points is a play point. So a lot of jiu-jitsu now is taught. It's a, it's a very practical fighting art, but it's taught through play and games. Mm. So there'll be a game which will be in this one. Winner is the person that gets the underhook. Mm -hmm. Just play for the underhook. That's how we're teaching fighting. Contemporary fighting is being taught through games and play. So creativity can also be taught through uh, breaking apart a process and allowing people to concentrate on one of those things at a time, especially for people with ADHD and dyslexia, where it's an absolute shit show and we have no idea how we do the thing we do. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to slow it down. Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of like adding a method to the madness, right? Like controlling controlled chaos a little bit, like do crazy things within yes. these boxes and frameworks, um, which helps because do crazy things can be overwhelming. I mean, if you think anyone listening to this that's been in a creative review, right? They, they've heard things like keep going, make it crazier. Uh, what about the thing I talked about? In a, they're given feedback that's just not helpful yeah. for their creative process. And what we're trying to do is build a system that is helpful for a creative process. Yeah. I think it helps that it's coming from someone who understands the way those people think as well. So I want to um, talk about some creative predictions. Obviously, the Super Bowl is coming up. What are you expecting to see? I mean, what are you hoping for in terms of the creativity? Uh, there's what I'm ex hoping for and there's what I'm expecting to see. <laughs> and I don't know if they're the same thing. I think we're, I think it's one of those things, right? Like everybody reads the same books. Everyone goes to the same blogs. Everyone listens to the same stuff. There is this kind of cultural undertone. There'll be 20% of them will be jokes about AI. They'll be like, we all kind of know where this thing is going to go and that's okay i'm i mean i don't i don't necessarily care i think i'm just looking for the outliers so when someone tries to do something for five seconds when something someone tries to hijack i just want somebody to try something that's all mm -hmm. yeah i think a lot of times with the super bowl it's, it's so a strange one right well, it's so high stakes and there's so much money that goes into it that it's like almost hard to take a risk. 
sometimes. It is, but it's also one of the best uses of money in advertising, right? Mm-hmm. Like we realized that it was like an undervalued media for such a long time. And I remember doing Super Bowl ads where you'd be like, this is like $4 million for 30 seconds. And then you look at the viewership and you're like, well, it should probably be $8 million for 30 seconds. <laughs> and now it is. So, and yeah, now you're at. It's a risk because of how much it costs. You can fuck up publicly quite easily. But uh, I think that's why it's not the most interesting form of advertising. Mm. Is that fair to say? Do I sound crazy? No, I think you're right. What is the most interesting form of advertising to you? Yeah, that's not a very, I suppose I, I walked myself into not a very easy question right there. <laughs> um, it, is things, it, is, it is things you don't see coming. Yeah. That's what it is. The unexpected. Yeah. And, and also sometimes, a lot of the time, not advertising. Like there is an Hermes window display that I think is one of the greatest ideas in the history of ideas that like I have a like I have these presentations of where good ideas can go. And this window display is just the greatest. I'm I'm more jealous of it than I think maybe any ad ever made. So I think the things I'm excited by are where they use media in an interesting way when uh, design and advertising are combined in a way you didn't know, or there's just charm. So at a moment where so much is quantifiable and researchable and researched, when somebody sprinkles that kind of magic advertising dust of charm on something, it's Mm. still wildly disarming. What did you love so much about the window display? I'll, I'll describe it to you. Okay. It has a video of a model, and next to the video is just clipped up is an Hermes silk scarf. And as the model blows, on the TV, on the screen, so a hidden air blows onto this Hermes scarf. Mm. And it's, it's a screen, it's a product demonstration which is like so rare to see a good product demonstration. It's about elegance. It's about quality. It's about beauty and it's about magic. Mm. And for a kind of storied fashion brand to have those four things in a window, you, you don't expect it's going to blow your socks off. You watch it and it's just, it's everything you loved about like, the line, the witch in the wardrobe and are the places you'll go. All of the charm of childhood now made exquisite and luxurious, but magic. Mm. It's Googleable. Well, you heard it here, everyone. Look at this window and remember to sprinkle a little bit of charm onto your ideas. Yeah. And thank you so much, Joe, for joining me today. Thank you. It's been great. What a lovely way to start Tuesday. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to Campaign Chemistry. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head to campaignlive.com for all the latest news on advertising and marketing. 